Our Father, we do pray that you would accompany your word, that your spirit would go forth in power as your word goes forth, that you would keep me from error and allow your truth to be made known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It was April 18th, 1521. Martin Luther had just been called before the Holy Roman Emperor. Having been publicly refuting that salvation could ever come by any human merit, he had defied not just the Catholic, Roman Catholic teaching, but the Roman Catholic's authority, the church's authority. And so here he stood before the emperor who was requiring of him that he retract his statements or face the consequences. The scene is arguably the most gripping in all of the Reformation. Onlookers wondered, what will he do? Will he give in? Will he buckle under the pressure? Here was the decisive juncture that would demonstrate just how truly young Martin believed the gospel of free grace that he so ardently preached. What do you think Martin should have done? Well, as gripping as the scene is, We come to one quite like it this morning in the book of Galatians. But before we turn there, let's just review what we've covered in our first two weeks. So if you remember, we know this this letter is a letter written by Paul to these churches that he and Barnabas recently planted in Galatia. Which means that the church was largely comprised of Gentile converts who were probably young in their faith. Maybe just two years in. Paul has left, or when Paul left to go plant other churches, false teachers, known as Judaizers, actually crept in. And upon arrival, they started teaching and spreading two lies. The first lie, this Paul that planted the church that brought you this gospel, he's not really a true apostle. And the second lie, therefore his message, his gospel, it's not a complete gospel. In fact, if these Gentiles wanted to truly become full Christians, they would need to not only adopt his gospel, but also the law. And more specifically, none more important than the law to be circumcised, because that was the the very covenant between God and Abraham. And so they came in and tried to impose this upon them. And refuting their claim, Paul spent all of chapter 1 and into the What we're getting at all of chapter one, proving that his apostleship, well, it actually came directly from Jesus. And his message, his gospel, this good news that salvation comes entirely by grace alone. And is received entirely by faith alone. Through repentance alone and believing in Jesus and his work alone. That gospel with no works, not even circumcision being able to contribute to this free and saving grace, that gospel which Paul received and now preaches was itself revealed from Jesus. But as we turn now to chapter 2, 
Paul puts forward one final defense, and it takes the form of these two riveting scenes. Scenes that serve to illustrate not only was Paul's gospel the one true gospel, but it was in fact the very same gospel that the rest of the apostles were already preaching, contrary to what his opponents were accusing. There was no inconsistency between them, even if these Judaizers would claim there was. So these two scenes make for these two remarkably decisive moments, not just in Paul's ministry, and not just in the purity of the gospel, but really in the future of Christianity, the future of Christendom. So we're going to take each scene in turn, and as we do, we'll consider three implications for our life together as a church. So if you haven't already... Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, and it can be found on page 1810 in the Pew Bibles if you're using those in front of you, where we'll find scene 1, the conference. Let's begin with the setting of this conference, verse 1. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. Let's stop there. If you remember from last week, Paul started an autobiography where he's referencing when he first visited Jerusalem three years into his conversion. Well, continuing that now in chapter 2, he says it's been now 14 years since his conversion that he visits for a second time. Only this time he brings two companions, Barnabas and Titus. Now, Barnabas would have made a great companion on the trip, He was a Jewish convert, well-respected in Jerusalem, esteemed by his colleagues there. But the real tension comes in with the mention of Titus. Titus was a Greek, which means Titus was a Gentile convert. He was the very kind of convert that these Judaizers were declaring incomplete if he did not conform to the Jewish law through being circumcised. So Paul brings him to this conference in Jerusalem with him. So you can feel the tension starting to bubble. Verse 2. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. We're not told specifically what this revelation was, There are some hints maybe in Acts 11, but what we do know is that the primary purpose of his visit is listed right there. He planned to present his gospel to these leaders, which included some apostles. He wanted to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. But then what does that mean? Is is Paul now questioning his gospel? Is, Is he now... Wondering whether it was even true, did he need the apostles to actually confirm the revelation that he'd received directly from Jesus? Well, no, I don't think so, because he's already spent all of chapter 1 proving his unwavering confidence that this gospel came from him, and it is reliable. He doesn't need man's contribution to affirm his gospel as true. He's not now, 14 years into his ministry, going to you know, suddenly turn and see if the apostles perhaps think he was mistaken. Rather, what I think he's acknowledging is the ability that these influential leaders had to frustrate his ministry, 
if they taught a different gospel. I heard the analogy, the best one I've heard so far is that of a relay race. Paul knows that Jesus commissioned the church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, not just Paul. And he knows that no matter how hard he runs, if the church, and especially these leaders, were not running with him, or worse, were running opposite him, well, his, his efforts would finally prove, as he says, in vain. So he seeks to create this private meeting where he can just remove outside influences and have an honest discussion, evaluation of their unity together. And so we come to our first test, verse 3. Yet not even Titus was with me, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Even though he was a Greek, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Many commentators have been somewhat confused by the grammar in, this, in these three verses, specifically how three relates with four and five. So depending on what translation you have, you might, the, the language there doesn't quite feed naturally into itself. But what we do see without question is Paul attributing this pressure being experienced to force the law onto Gentiles, like Titus, was attributed to false brothers, false Christians, Opponents who snuck in with an agenda to enslave. But then what does that mean? I remember disappointing my parents as a child. You might not remember that. I remember that. And I remember committing myself to never failing again. I was going to be the perfect child. Have you ever done that as a child? Have you done that as an adult? I'm going to be the perfect wife. I am going to be the perfect father. I will be the perfect friend. What happens? You fail. You eventually realize and quickly learn that you can't finally do it. You lack sufficient resolve and purity to finally perfect yourself. You are by nature then, as it says here, enslaved to sin on your own. And God's law exposes it. So in that sense, God's law serves more as the doctor's diagnosis than it does as the medicine. You know, it tells you, it alerts you that a cure is needed. It's not the cure itself. It alerts you that the cure is needed. It is not itself the cure. But the good news of this gospel that we've been talking about already all morning, that Paul's been talking about throughout this letter, the good news of this gospel is that there is a cure and it is offered to all people. It is this cure that even though in spite of of the fact that you cannot finally perfect yourself or merit God's right, right standing with God, his acceptability of you, God sent Jesus to live that perfect life for you. And on the cross, 
He not only took upon himself the punishment for your failures, for the failures of his people, but then he gives to them his righteousness, his perfection. We then actually stand as those made perfect. He frees them, as it were, from the condemnation of the law that had previously enslaved them. And he does it all by grace, through faith. For anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. Have you done that this morning? Have you trusted in Jesus like this? Or have you chosen instead to continue with this terminal diagnosis at the rejection of the cure? But then if this good news of the gospel is entirely undeserved, is unmerited, is a free gift, what happens the moment you start requiring human works? Whether that's circumcision, as was the case here with Titus, or baptism, or the Lord's Supper, or any other good works, what happens to that free gift? Well, it's no longer free. And you've taken the shackles that Christ removed and you start binding them back on again. That is what these Judaizers were seeking to do. These, or these false brothers seeking to enslave, as Paul says, the Gentiles by requiring more than the gospel requires. But amidst all the pressure, neither Paul nor Barnabas, gave in for, as they said, a moment. They did not give in for a moment. And why? So that the truth of the gospel might remain for you. Might be preserved for you. This is amazing that their faithfulness in Jerusalem resulted in the preservation of the gospel For the churches in Galatia. And for that matter, if you're a Christian, for you here this morning. And that's the first implication I want to draw out from our text this morning. We'll call it gospel permanence. The gospel does not change with culture. The gospel does not change with culture. Culture changes, the gospel does not. Pressures vary. The gospel remains. Satan will attack the gospel from every angle available, but it will not be overcome. And God has called you, if you're a Christian this morning, he has called you to be the very means of protecting it. You are its protector. So I wonder what cultural pressures are you facing this morning to alter the content of the gospel? Doubtful, it's the same pressure Paul was facing. You know, while the false brothers accused him of being too inclusive, I'd imagine it's just the opposite for you. Accused of being too exclusive. Have you felt the pressure of being viewed as arrogant, pompous, holier than thou, for thinking you might know the way? Do your relatives think you should tone it down a bit? They tell you it's not loving to warn people about judgment for their sin. It's far too offensive. 
Or as your colleagues laugh at your faith and they ask why Christians are so narrow-minded. In that moment, will you compromise? Or will you stand firm and lovingly explain the truth? How will even this church respond when the government pressures institutions to be more inclusive? And even churches across the island begin exchanging what churches have always stood on, on matters like sexuality or gender or other matters, and begin to compromise that and are championed as the ones being truly tolerant and therefore the true Jesus-like love for those around them. If you or especially this church begins to compromise today, what effect might that have on churches in this area or the generations to come? In the face of cultural opposition, Paul remained firm on the unchanging permanence of this one true gospel. And he didn't do it just for himself, but for you this morning. And so we should do likewise. So the first test passed, but that was just against these false brothers. Paul returns now to this originally intended audience, these influential leaders. Let's go back to verse 6. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews, for God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter was as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James and Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. And now we see the three main figures among these influential leaders who Paul calls the three pillars. You have Peter and John, who were among Jesus' three closest companions in his earthly ministry. And then you have James, Jesus' own brother. And yet Paul says that even they added nothing to his gospel. It was the same gospel that they were preaching. They approved both it and Paul's apostleship. This was huge. 14 years into his ministry and complete unity. No need to alter anything. Unity that the gospel is of free grace and nothing should be added to it. For God, as he says, does not judge by external appearances. His gospel is offered freely. And to any who would turn away from sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. They only asked Paul to remember the poor, presumably because the Gentile Christians were likely wealthier than the Christians in Judea. And they wanted to warn him not to forget his poor brothers as they left to minister among the wealthier. In this sense, the conference had been a home run. This was kind of your Rocky Balboa knockout. 
you know, Paul walks in and they have complete unity. It's the right hand of fellowship he received that served almost like today's political endorsement. Not to change the message at all, but to create the very platform that would strip away hindrances and allow for a broader proclamation of the message they believe. Most importantly, and what I think Paul has been trying to prove throughout these two chapters, is that there is one unchanging, unadulterated gospel revealed by Jesus and endorsed by his apostles. But I want, what I want us to recognize this morning is that this same endorsement, well, it has been given to you. Right here in his word, we have the same endorsement, the same revelation from Jesus. The same endorsement from his apostles in his word. And that's our second implication this morning, gospel endorsement. Friends, when you share the gospel, you actually speak as an ambassador to the king. He has commissioned you with a message and trusted you to deliver a message to as many as you are able to invite to a royal banquet any who would come and dine. And there is no person to whom you can't invite or you can't extend this message. All are welcome and yet not any will come unless they hear the invitation. You have been endorsed by the eternal king, the one the Philippians says one day will have every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And yet he has endorsed you to take his message to the ends of the earth, to proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind. My wife and I have been listening to the audiobook Unbroken. If you're familiar with the story, it's a riveting story. And where we're at right now, so don't tell me the end, I'm not there yet. But where we're at right now is, is the main character is being tortured as a prisoner of war. And as I'm listening, I keep imagining what it would be like to show up and tell him he's free. Tell him he's no longer enslaved. Tell him there is freedom and it is available to him. And better than that, the eternal king of the universe has invited him to not only leave bondage, but come and dine with him. And while this hopefully excites you, I realize the tension comes when you think the ones you want to share it with don't want to hear. Like Moses going into Egypt and telling the Hebrew slaves that God has sent them to deliver them from bondage. And yet the evil one has has caused him to grumble, not just against him, but in the very message of deliverance that he brings. Have you experienced this in your own life? Church, Satan will tempt others to resist your message. But would you withhold the greatest news available simply because you don't think they're yet interested? Would you withhold the greatest news available simply because you don't think they're yet interested? Let me remind you that the king's news is good news. It is an offering of far greater deliverance than bondage in Egypt, but a deliverance from the bondage of sin and God's judgment against it. An offering to make God, 
your heavenly father. A message of eternal hope and of eternal joy. And while they may not understand that yet, and perhaps they never will, their unacceptance does nothing to the goodness of the message or to the loving act of you offering it to them. Their unacceptance does nothing to the goodness of that news or the loving act of you offering it to them. And when Satan does oppose or ridicule you, friends, stand firm knowing the king who commissioned you as his ambassador will one day also vindicate you and will overthrow the enemy and bring you into his kingdom where there is fullness of joy. So let us go forth with confidence as ambassadors to this king. Well, having stood against these Judaizers and received the right hand of fellowship, Paul now turns to one final scene, one that many have found among the most tense in all of Scripture. We'll call this second scene the confrontation. Scene two, beginning in verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Having completed that first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas returned then to Antioch, the church that sent them out on their first journey. Antioch, the place that F.F. Bruce called headquarters to Gentile Christianity. And now they have a distinguished guest. The Apostle Peter's here. And it gives us a glimpse of what that right hand of fellowship kind of looks like. Here is the apostle to the Jews, fellowshipping with the apostle to the Gentiles, and dining with Gentile converts. But you have to understand how scandalous such activity would have been if the Judaizers had seen it. And Peter knew that. If you think back to Acts chapter 10, do you remember that vision that Peter receives in Acts And when he goes to the Gentiles, he tells them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God, in that vision, God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So he shares the gospel with them. They're saved. And then immediately... They eat together. Jew and Gentile dining as one in Christ. And yet knowing this and having already affirmed Paul's gospel, we see a different response from Peter this time. As these men from James come onto the scene. We don't know exactly who they are, but it seems they've either lied about their their relationship with James or they've at least lied about his message. All we know for sure is is that they managed to strike the fear of the circumcision group in Peter. 
but we probably shouldn't be too quick to look down on Peter. I'd imagine most of us have experienced this ourselves. Having been recipients of the truth, and yet in a moment, in the face of opposition, suddenly fearing and wanting to distance ourselves from it. Have you been in that conversation? As a group begins ridiculing this Christian preacher for his narrow-mindedness or his gullible belief, and as they're all on a tear about Christianity, one of them looks at you, wait a second, you're a Christian, right? And you kind of freeze. Have you been there? If you have, you know a bit of Peter's feeling. Not justified, but you at least can kind of step into that situation. Peter may have been fearing physical persecution. It may have been a simple case of fear of man. Or it could have been a more noble case, still wrong, but more noble, that he worried that being seen with the Gentiles might actually negatively impact his evangelism to the Jews, the very ones he'd been entrusted in as apostle to reach. But whatever it was, Paul feared, or excuse me, Peter feared being seen. And his actions not only proved it, but they led others to do likewise. And so we, we see that the other Jewish Christians and even Barnabas, they had all gone astray. And so we reach our final verse. Only Paul is left. He stands alone on one side. The apostle Peter, the Jewish Christians, even Barnabas on the other. Paul alone. And you feel the tension rising. What is Paul going to do? Verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. And not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul was once again unwilling to yield even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might yet again be preserved. But how was this hypocrisy? How was Peter's drawing back, as Paul said, not in line with the gospel? In one sense, Peter was doing the same thing that false brothers earlier were trying to do by adding to the gospel what was required for full fellowship. By drawing back, he was saying that they were not yet fully Christian in the same sense that the Jews were. At least that's what his actions communicated, whether even though he may not have himself believed it. In that sense, for Peter to proclaim the gospel of free grace while simultaneously drawing back, would be like us saying those first desegregated schools were equal, while simultaneously maintaining separate bathrooms, separate education materials, separate classrooms, all based exclusively on external appearances. The gospel shows no partiality. The gospel shows no partiality. It makes no judgment on external appearances. 
For as Paul said in verse 6, God shows no partiality. And that is why Paul could say about those influential leaders, whatever they were makes no difference to me. Not because he disrespected them, but because he recognized that no matter what their position in the church, at the end of the day, all are equal before God. For all have received the same righteousness through the same faith in the same Savior. And from this, I want to draw out our final implication. Gospel living. Gospel living. As one commentator put it, there is no such thing as a second-class Christian. There is, as Ephesians says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is in all and through all. As even Peter later writes to a group of unnamed Christians in his second letter, he says, to you who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter needed to know nothing about them except that they were in Christ. And that was sufficient for knowing they'd received the same righteousness that he himself had received. There are only those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and those who are still dead in their sins as we all once were. And that is why partiality and division and disunity inside of a church is so destructive. And why unity amidst diversity is so compelling. While partiality divides over external matters, unity, because of the gospel, unites over internal matters, heart matters, the shared redemption we've experienced by faith in Christ. And it's why the, if this is the very unity that Paul will later write of, write of in his letter to the, this, this letter to Galatians. When he says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, slave nor free. He's not denying differences. But he's saying at the end of the day before God, we are all of equal standing, equal worth. So what happens when your neighbor joins you for church and sees the 20-year-old single guy go out to lunch with the elderly retired couple when they come in and they start to see the barriers that the world around them builds up apparently gone the reasons for separation still there but the separation's missing when even those born in maine spend time with those who are from away (laughs) that was my main joke friends this is the type of gospel unity of gospel impartiality, of gospel living that marks a gospel-centered church. So let me encourage you to continue working to spend time with people not like yourself. Whether that's somebody of a different age or a different race or a different life stage, a different family status, or even someone of a different occupation. We should pay pay special attention to not showing partiality in favor of those who have money or conversely being partial against those who do make money. 
We should not show partiality for anything external. There is nothing external, no external attribute that should separate the church's unity around the one true gospel. And is it not just like Jesus? Who came and made himself like those not like himself. And taking on our human flesh, he denied himself, emptied himself, not even counting equality with God a thing to be grasped for the joy set before him of meeting our greatest need. And we should seek to do likewise. And church, let me encourage you that we need each other in this. If nothing else is clear in this text, it's that all of us are prone to wander and all of us are prone to leave the God we love. I mean, Peter and Barnabas and these Jewish Christians all wandered. There is no reason to assume we are any less prone than they. And we may not have Paul physically at the helm waiting to correct us, but we have his writings and his word and God's word. And more than that, more than that, we have the church that is built upon this word. In many ways, God has instituted the church to serve as the guardrails, protecting us and keeping us from falling away. And far from maturing beyond the need of guardrails, what we find in the Bible is that a true mark of maturity is actually leaning more into those guardrails to the point that you eventually become them for someone else. Church, God has called you to serve as the guardrails for one another. God has called you to serve as the guardrails for one another. To be like Paul to Peter. And he has finally equipped each one of us, not just with his word, but with his spirit to do so. And has promised that he will bring the work to completion among you and even through you. Do not deny what God has given to serve as the bumpers down the lane to heaven. Gladly and humbly accept them as necessary for the gospel and for gospel living. When both of these scenes, Paul serves as an example of steadfast confidence in the unchanging and spirit-empowered, life-transforming gospel. A confidence that was much like that of Martin Luther's. So much so that I think it would be both mutually edifying and tying in if we just read his, the, the words attributed to his response to that Roman emperor. Martin Luther says, Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God, and I cannot I will not recount, recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Church, may God give us such steadfast confidence in this gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you. 
as a great God of impartiality and of, of generous grace that is free to all who would come and receive, who would turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And we pray that you'd bless this church through uh, with, a, with a confident resolve to stand firm upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.